Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We are now on episode 381 of Inquiring Minds. And back in episode 128, I had the pleasure of interviewing Cy Montgomery. She's a naturalist and author, and I like to think of her as kind of a modern-day James Harriet, someone who just has a way with animals, who's able to understand them deeply and interact with them, befriend them. Back then, I talked to her about her book, The Soul of an Octopus, which really helped me understand what this very strange nervous system of a cephalopod might have to do with the human brain and might help us understand our own nervous system. What struck me during that conversation is just how much she loves animals. And while she might be best known for her work with octopuses, she's written 33 other books about creatures as diverse as tigers, tapirs, hyenas, snakes, dolphins, hummingbirds, and many, many more. But in each of these books, it's clear that she's able to establish a kind of mutual love or at least respect with the creatures with which she interacts. But her new book, which describes her relationships with hawks, is a little different. Simon Montgomery, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, I, Soul of an Octopus is one of my favorite books. And uh, I recently did a project with the Oliver Sacks Foundation and Audible. We wrote an, an, and created a new podcast called Radiant Minds. And they asked me in the promotional material, what would be a book that Oliver would have loved? And Soul of an Octopus was right there. And I don't know if you ever corresponded with him and, and if he had read it. No, but I, I read just about everything he ever wrote. I was a huge, huge fan. And we have mutual friends at Temple Grandin. Yeah, right, right. Temple. And anyway, I was just so sure that he would be a kindred spirit of yours. Yeah. Oh, I wish he was still on this earth with us. Uh, me too. Me too. So when another book came onto my desk, written by you. I was so excited not only to read it, but also to talk to you about it. Um, so this is The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. 
And it was totally unexpected when I started reading it. Because, I mean, certainly, you know, I think of of raptors or hawks as being beautiful, majestic, fierce birds, but not quite as evil <laughs> as apparently they are. Well, so, they're, they're <laughs> savage and they are ruthless, but it's bereft of evil. They are completely innocent. They're doing what they're meant to do. It's just a lot of what they do scares us. And with good reason, because our kind or our ancestors were hunted by the ancestors of these birds. You know, the Tong child, the famous Tong child in, in Asia, one of our, it was an Australopithecine um, hominid. And for years, when I was growing up, we were told all of it, that it was eaten by a leopard or a cave lion or something like that. But no, this Australopithecine was killed by a huge, now extinct eagle. So wow. you you are right to be a little bit nervous if you see one of these birds flying towards you with their talons outstretched, because it's it's not going to end well unless you're a falconer and you've got your falconry glove. And I and I love how you put this into the evolutionary context. You know, we think of dinosaurs as extinct, and yet here we are, faced with them. <laughs> Yes, I know. And when you think of it, there's a dinosaur. If I mean, if you eat meat, which I don't, but every Thanksgiving, there's a dinosaur <laughs> on your dining room table. And if you feed birds, which I do, you know, that chickadee that's pecking at the seeds, that's the dinosaur. And not just any dinosaur. It's not just, you know, Brontosaurus or Diplodocus or somebody like that, one of the slow dinosaurs who moved on four legs. Um, these are the theropod dinosaurs who became birds. These are the dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex and Velociraptor who became birds. Yeah, and, and listening or reading your description of uh, these these falcons, or I guess we should we should talk about what the family here is, so that we're not just you know are we all talk are we talking about the same family of species when we're talking about hawks and eagles and and raptors in general? Right, they're, they're all raptors. They're all called raptors. They are all called birds of prey. Birds of prey. Okay. And that's easier really to, to say because in England, they have these buzzards who are raptors, but uh -huh. our buzzards are vultures. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So there's a difference. There's a difference yeah. between vultures and raptors. Right. Because vultures don't kill. They are not birds of prey. They are, they are scavengers. And just think what a mess the world would be without vultures. And I love vultures and they're fabulous and they eat meat, but they don't kill it. Uh-huh. You know, it's it, it's though your description of the talons, of the wingspan, of the way they're born with this little buzz tuft of, I can't, can't quite remember what you described it, but just think of a, like fluff balls <laughs> that turn into feathers. That, that made me sort of start to see how how they might be related to dinosaurs or how might they might be the descendants of dinosaurs, as opposed to like the cute little chickadee. Right. And look, but look at even the chickadee's feet. And there are these scaly things with like toenails on the end. And uh, that's when you start to see dinosaur. But, you know, most of the dinosaurs that we know, we don't picture them as having feathers, but quite a few living dinosaurs who, who lived, you know, before the asteroid wiped them out 65 million years ago, a lot of them not only hatched out of the egg with down, Tyrannosaurus rex had down, but a lot of these had actual feathers and we know what the feathers looked like. We we know what color they were now. 
Wow. So it's so different from when I was growing up and imagining what baby dinosaurs looked like and adult dinosaurs looked like. They've changed dramatically since when I was growing up. But then, you know, I'm 64 years old. So a lot of stuff has happened. So to be a falconer, I, having read your book, now understand is to be a special kind of person. <laughs> because having a, a raptor as a pet is not the same as that beautiful dog that just went in and out of your room. And, and, and listeners, if you heard some of that panting, that was the dog. That yes, was it wasn't not, me. Not me, or I. <laughs> because they don't love you back. Yeah. And they don't even belong to you. They're, they're not your pet. My falconry instructor, Nancy Cowan, who, to my unending sorrow, died this past winter, she always emphasized, you don't own that bird. You are not the master of that bird. If you train that bird at all, what you've trained them to do is to let you serve her. You are the junior hunting partner. And the thing about these birds is that we're not even keeping them in captivity because if a bird thinks you're a lousy hunting partner, that bird will fly away and you will never see it again. And, and you describe stories of, of birds who, who just like do that one day. You know, they've been with someone for years, maybe. And then one day they're like, well, I've had enough of you and they fly away. But then there's also birds that um, I've heard of. Steve Bodio, wonderful writer who wrote, among other books, A Rage for Falcons. He describes wild goshawks that will fly out of the woods and hunt with people just because it's a good hunting partner. It's not because they love that person. It's because they're a good hunting partner. So, it, yeah, if I wanted to be a junior hunting partner for, <laughs> for some kind of a hawk, um, what, what do I need to do? Why would they need us? I mean, they have obviously this wonderful vision. They have the talons. They, have, they can fly. I mean, what can I possibly add? Well, you can scare up game because when you walk through the leaf litter in the forest, you could disturb a squirrel or a vole or a mole. And if it moves even just the littlest bit in response to your passing by, that hawk with its amazing vision is going to see it. And the minute they make the connection between you and the appearance of that game, bam, it's in their file folder with hunting success. And they are always going to, to hunt with you. And this is how you get birds of prey to hunt with dogs, which normally they would never do. Most birds of prey hate dogs and will scream at dogs. And when you're first training a bird to hunt with a dog, you don't have to hunt with a dog. But um, if you are working with a dog, at first the bird just screams at the dog, like, I hate you, you're stupid, get away from me. But the minute that dog points, and they make a connection between, oh, that dog helped me find a prey animal and I got a slip on game. Now, all of a sudden, their prejudice against dogs is gone. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting that you say points because I feel like, you know, shared attention, like or joint attention pointing to something and then the another animal or being noticing that you are looking at something and then they look in that direction rather than at you is a pretty sophisticated cognitive skill. And it's amazing to me that these birds can do that. Yes, it, it totally is. But, you know, I'm surprised. Many people say, 
that, you know, wolves, for example, will not respond if you physically, if you physically point. And interestingly, octopuses have been able to figure out if you're pointing your finger, they know to follow that to the thing that you're pointing at. Because many people think that birds of prey are not that smart. But as you point out, they are smart in their own way. They're smart when it comes to hunting. They are brilliant, incandescently brilliant when it comes to hunting. I love too whenever you you describe specific instances in which you know the bird would scream at you out of anger. I mean that was it's such a vivid image in my head of you having you know your glove and the bird perches on it and then just turns its face and like yells at you. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, so you know you describe this relationship with the birds as unique as something that you had never experienced before, um, as something that changed your life. So can you walk us through a little bit about how you went from having this thing that just screams at you and clearly just <laughs> spews vitriol to this completely new way relationship? Well, I had been used to lots of different animals. I've had friends who were octopuses who would turn white beneath my touch. They'd feel so comfortable when I touched them. One of my very good friends, family member really was a pig, a real pig. And um, I knew how to touch him in a way that would just make him roll over in porcine bliss. And I once tried that with a rhino. I mean, not just a wild rhino with somebody's rhino, but that worked. Wait, somebody had a rhino? Wait, what? Well, yeah, some, okay. <laughs> it was like a rhino ranch. But I mean, it wasn't just a don't try this at home with a wild rhino. But usually, you know, with, with gentle touch, you can get an animal to feel comfortable with you. But hawks are different. They do not want you to touch them at all. This is different from other birds like cockatoos and cockatiels. They often do like to be touched, not a hawk. Hmm. Everything that works with other animals doesn't work with a hawk. You are totally submitting to their rules. And that was something Nancy was very clear about. And I'm fine with that because I totally understand that, you know, animals have been my teachers from the time that I was old enough to think or even understand language. Probably before I could understand language, I'd look to animals to teach me. And I am fine being the junior partner and I am fine being the one who learns from them and takes my cues from them. But with, with a hawk, they're not going to love you back in a way that we humans are used to at all. And it taught me, a, I think, a, a more humble and more pure kind of love. And in this way, this ruthless, lethal hunter expanded my capacity for compassion. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how you got to know the hawk. You know, it sounds like in the beginning, you know, you you had Nancy and 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 she just jumps from the page and how you describe, you know, her relationship with the birds and and sort of the things that she taught you. Um but sort of tell us a little bit about sort of those early encounters and and what you learned and how how the only word I can think of to say is how you learn to handle the hawk, but you don't handle a hawk. The hawk handles you. Well, true. <laughs> but you learn what mistakes not to make. And Nancy was a fantastic instructor. Um, she was great with, with both the hawks and with the people. And she showed me 
what movements are okay and what movements are not okay. One of the things she would always say is low and slow as you go. You don't want to make a quick movement with a hawk, even though they are all about quick movement. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to do that. You want to always be calm and try to be as you know graceful. Mm-hmm. You can't treat them like a dog. You can't expect to reward them. I mean, I, I would never punish a dog. You certainly can't punish a raptor. But you're not rewarding a raptor either. What you're doing is is teaching them that they can trust you. But even when you hand them food, the way Nancy explained it was, you're giving them their food. It was their food to begin with. <laughs> it is not yours to give. They see food. They're on a seafood diet. They see food, they eat it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, you can't look at it as if, you know, I'm I'm rewarding this bird. The reward for the bird is that it can trust you. The biggest reward for the bird is to let it fulfill its heart's desire, which is to chase and capture game. And this was the wild thing for me because I am so not a hunter. I'm, you know, I see a dead squirrel on the on the street and I feel sick about it all day, you know. And um, and these these birds hunt and kill squirrels and moles and voles and bunnies and all kinds of these sweet little things that if I ever found them hurt, I would rush them to wildlife rehabilitator or try to help them myself. But when I got to know these hawks, their joy in the chase became mine. And although I had no desire to hurt any of the prey items that they that they chose to chase, I could feel their joy. I could feel their hot happiness as they were fulfilling what they were meant to do. In falconry, there's a word called yarrick, and it names that hunting desire. And if your hawk gets a buildup of hunting desire that it, it, it can't discharge, that hawk might attack you. And that had happened to Nancy with a hawk who she knew very well and who she personally loved and was, was attacked badly. And it, it wasn't because the hawk was trying to punish her. He just felt this explosive buildup of frustrated desire. So when you can let that desire be fulfilled, the desire for which the, the creature was made, the desire that, you know, when it's allowed to express that desire, it is pure hawk, pure wildness, purely what it was meant to do. When you allow that hawk or facilitate the ability of that hawk to do what it was meant to do, that's the way in which you can serve her. So it's not like you could just provide a bunch of dead mice and that 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 there is that that in fact the best thing you could do is take that hawk on a hunt and scare up the mice. Or or do you think that there is even a like was there a situation in which it, like I can imagine a sort of large cage in which the mice can't ultimately escape? Would that be like a feast for for the hawk or would that just be not not exciting enough. I don't know how to put that. Well, if if you have a re- rehab hawk, if you have a or a hawk who's permanently injured and cannot be let go, nothing will make that hawk happier than if a prey item, a live prey item, appears. And that is true of lions and tigers and cheetahs and all the cursorial predators. They would like the bowl of 
cat food or dog food, but they'd really rather chase the prey. As you know from, you know, if if you've had a, a pet cat, for example, they have plenty to eat. It's not just that they're hungry, it's that they are made, they are hunters. That is what they that's what they do for a living. That's what they're made of. So when you're teaching a young hawk to trust you, and when that hawk is learning the skills it needs to capture prey, one of the things that you can do is get a lure. It's a leather, um, it's not a puppet, but it's it looks almost like a little leather doll. And you tie some meat onto that thing and you swing it on like a, a leash. And the bird can get practice attacking that lure. Mm. And you don't just swing it and hope the bird catches it and then the bird will be swinging. What you do is you swing it, you swing it, you swing it when the bird, then you throw it. And as it flies, the bird gets a chance to chase it. And that chase is very fulfilling and exciting. Hmm. You know, we have a we have a big pine tree in our backyard. And once in a while, there is uh, what I think now after reading your book is a Cooper's hawk. Oh, wow. That once in a while comes by and leaves detritus of the pigeons <laughs> that oh, wow. run on our deck. And so we've had the the good fortune of once in a while seeing it sort of perch after it's had its meal. And I will say that like, it's not a clean eater. <laughs> It definitely leaves lots of meat on our deck. And it always made me wonder, like, that just must be so hard for a bird to catch another bird. I mean, surely there's got to be rodents and surely like, but the effort that it must have gone to and then yet not to take advantage of all of those calories always perplexed me. Well, one reason um, sometimes it won't take all of the calories is that if it's on the ground with the prey item, it's in danger from other hawks. So other hawks will attack it? Oh, yeah. And the higher bird always has the advantage. And when you're doing falconry, every time you take your bird out, you've taken that bird out to the wild, and the wild is dangerous, and your hawk can die doing the very thing it wants to do. So other hawks will attack it just because it's food now, or it's, it's you know, but they don't, they don't recognize their own? Well, it's a competitor. I mean... Probably it's not going to attack somebody that it might want to mate with later, but... That was going to be my next question. (laughs) She had a hawk named Witch, who she had raised from a tiny, fluffy chick, a darling little fluffy tripod of a thing that (laughs) they called her Witch because she was in the kitchen all the time and um, called her Kitchen Witch because she really was never without this hawk. And the hawk grew up and became a hunter and... Nancy went into the field to hunt with her and she saw a big red tail overhead and she tried to call Witch down to her glove where she'd be safe. But Witch knew that flying down, there was safety on the glove, but it's also more dangerous to be down. And so instead she flew higher and Nancy ran after Witch, desperate to to call her down to the glove and, and rescue her, and soon realized, I cannot go there fast enough. I have to go hitch a ride on a logging truck. So she flags down this logging truck, and she got to where she thought her bird would be, and in the tree was the red tail, looking much fatter than before. Oh, no. Oh. And she went back for a week calling and swinging the lure for Witch. And she knows that bird ate her bird. But that's the wild, you know, and they are the soul of wildness. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And so let's talk a little bit about um, mating. Do they form bonds with another bird ever and or how does that you know how how do they make little birds <laughs> how does that work well um, yeah they do and they they actually most birds not just hawks but most birds are more wedded to their nest site than they even are to their mate because a good nest site is really really hard to find right yeah i always wondered whether the hawk would eventually nest in that pine tree but i just don't i don't know it hasn't happened yet but boy, well, you'll see it because their their stick nests are humongous. And the other thing is, you may know about it if you go into your backyard and if you hear someone screaming at you, it might be the hawk saying, get away, get away, get away. With goshawks, they will attack people to protect their nest. And oh, wow. That's, that's a serious problem because a goshawk can hurt you. But uh, mostly they will just warn you and you'll see them swooping. But, you know, seagulls will do the same things. OK, so so let's maybe I don't want to have a nest in my backyard. Well, you do. But... You do. I think it will be so thrilled. <laughs> However, I mean, all your robins are going to be gone really fast. Right. Yeah. Um, if you if you feed birds, your feeder, the birds that come to your feeder are going to be fewer if you have a, a hawk in your yard, and which is why a lot of people don't like them. Right. Well, we don't. Yeah, we 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 just like the hawks. So we kind of just let it, you know, we don't feed birds, but we also, yeah, we we, we let it do its thing because um, it, it comes back about once a year. It's it's now been become I don't know if it's the same hawk or a different one. But in any case, really, it's the same one. That's exciting. Yeah. But but so so tell me about their like if they don't bond to their human or their junior hunting partner <laughs> in the way that some birds bond to you know, either other birds or the people that they live with, do they bond with a mate? Um, or do they have any, is there, is, is there a sense of that, you know, like, how, how does that work? Yeah, they, I mean, they will. And they, and they do bond with humans. It's just not the bond that we're used to seeing. They're kind of like Klingons um, <laughs> or, or Vulcans on, on Star Trek. There's not a whole lot of public display of affection. But you know what? A lot of animals, when they're actually mating, they look like they're killing each other. <laughs> so, have you ever seen parrots feed each other? 
they look like they're grabbing each other's face and shaking them around. <laughs> Who would want that? And um, Conrad Lorenz, when he was raising his jackdaws, who, who are like a kind of a crow, what they do, they showed their affection for him by throwing up worms in his ears. <laughs> so that isn't necessarily the kind of, I mean, I'd rather have flowers and candy than vomited worms in my ears, but that's how they show it. <laughs> So I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about sort of the kind of skills that the hawks have and like what we know about sort of what they're able to do. And like, you know, you take them out on a hunt or, you know, it, it sounds like there are all these new words that I learned from describing falconry. So can you tell us a little bit about like some of the beyond just like go out into the field, scare up some rodents and, you know, let the hawk go. There are other kinds of behaviors that those hawks learn to do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what they are and what, what they mean? Well, a lot of, there's a lot of words um, in falconry that no one has ever heard of. And um, even when it, it poops, it's, it's not pooping. It's, uh, it depends on if you have a, a hawk or a falcon, but it's known as mute or slice. It's just like they require their own vocabulary. If you're sleeping, that's called junking. If you wipe your beak to like get rid of the gross flesh on it, that's called feeking. So it has this whole, and there's all kinds of accoutrements too that are used in falconry. I mean, falconry connects you with this, this ancient sport that goes back millions of, of years. It's, um, falconry was, has been used all over the world some of the practices are identical to what would have been used a thousand years ago. Many people keep their falcons hooded until they're ready to hunt. And they make these like hats that cover their eyes. And you would think essentially blinding the bird would make it freak out and make it terribly nervous. But no. I found when you put a hood on a bird, it's almost like you're extinguishing a candle. It won't move. And, and in a way, it's not even alive in the sense that hawks are so incandescently alive when their eyes are open. Their eyes, their, their eyes weigh twice as much as their brain. Their eyes gather so much more of life than, than ours do. We have um, one area of perfect vision in our eye called fovea and hawks have two called fovi and um, they have so many more receptors than we do they may have a million we have 200,000 they see colors and detail that we cannot even dream of you and i would look you know how how when you when you fly over a forest you just see like a whole bunch of broccoli <laughs> they see layers of individual leaves they see colors that we can't name that shimmer like the iridescent feathers of hummingbirds. And speaking of hummingbirds, when you and I see a hummingbird on the wing, we see a blur, but a hawk sees each individual wing beat. Wow. So they are apprehending the same world that we are in, in a much richer way than we are. So hence, I think, you know, our awe in the face of this bird. And we've always known, even when we couldn't like look inside their eyes and 
you know, look at things with microscopes and when we couldn't measure how quickly they can fly. We've always known that about hawks. We've always described them as magnificent. And this is true throughout all human cultures. So I'm still I'm still puzzled by the hood thing. Like, do they go to sleep? And if they when they sleep, do they close their eyes? I mean, it's just I, I, I love this this idea of like the eyeball being, you know, having all of these receptors and even bigger than the brain. And then the brain really is only needed to, you know, basic life functions and to process all that information. Right. To like make sense of that, of, of all that visual stimulation. So that if there isn't an eye, I can imagine that would just, does it put them kind of to sleep? Well, yeah, it's like turning off a switch. It really is. It's amazing. You would think this would complete, I mean, if you blindfolded me, I'd be like freaking out. Right, right. But it calms them. And the, the hood is often this gorgeous piece of art. They're, they're often very beautiful and hand tooled. They frequently have feathers. They always have something on the top so that you can pull it off very quickly. Mm, oh, that's what that's for. Yeah, I thought it was just thing. like, you know, let's pretend it's a peacock or something. Yeah, it's not just for decoration. <laughs> yeah, but um, it has to fit perfectly because you don't want to injure their eyes. And that's the other thing about being a falconer is that, you know, not only can the bird injure you very badly if it feels like it, um, it's called footing when they will grab you with their talons and their talons can go right through your skin and your bone and, and really, really do a number on you. Their bills, it, it, except for um, peregrines who they, their bite is kind of like a staple gun, but um, mostly the bills aren't really doing the, the killing. It's their feet. But the thing you have to really be careful for as a falconer is that you don't let any harm come to your bird because as strong as they are, and even given all these superpowers, they're very delicate. You know, just a little bit of wind can lift their wing at the wrong moment and twist it and hurt their, their shoulder. Their, their bones are hollow and can easily snap in two. And their eyes, if something happens to their eyes, they're wrecked. Think of a peregrine who can fly at 240 miles an hour. You have to see perfectly. Yes, yes. You can't be like getting a cinder out of your eye while you're heading down at 240 miles an hour. But that begs the question then, do they, like, how do they not, if I was flying at 200 miles an hour, like my eyes would dry out. Like I, you know, it would be very like, but they don't have goggles. What what is it about? No, but they have a nictitating membrane. They have a third eyelid, as as many reptiles do, which is very very handy. They can still they can still see through that. And if you were flying downward at 240 miles an hour, the air going in your nose would would shred your lungs too. <laughs> right. So what they have in their in their nostril, they they have this little thing. It kind of it kind of looks like um, you'll see this mounted on um, the uh, engines of of uh, airplanes, the little bump thing. It probably actually has some fancy name in falconry. And that helps slow down the air so that it doesn't shred their lungs. At the beginning of the book, you describe going to a kind of event uh, in which a lot of people gathered. And that's where you met, I think, some of the some of the birds that you encountered and some of the people who um, were their junior hunting partners 
and in it, you describe that there's this, 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 this mass of birds, including raptors, that, that fly around at a certain time of year. And it made me wonder, like, I always thought of, you know, these kinds of birds of prey as like, as being very territorial and not sort of congregating in groups. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why in this place at this time, do they congregate? Is it about mating? Or is there some other reason? Well, many raptors are migratory. And um, here in the Northeast, in the fall, there is this absolutely magnificent migration of hundreds of thousands of birds, including broadwing hawks. The broadwings are the most numerous, and they will fly all the way down to South America and spend the winter there. And then they are flying back up right now. As we speak, they are landing in backyards in New York and New Hampshire and 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 Maine, and they'll still they'll, they're still coming. Uh, we only recently put uh, radio transmitters on some of these birds from New Hampshire. We have three. Let's see. There's Thelma. There's Monadnock, and there's Harris. Um, and they uh, we, we can therefore keep track of where they're going unless they are uh, under tree cover. So. When they were in Colombia, we couldn't find out exactly what tree they went to because they're transmitting their information to a satellite. But um, that's where you get, and they they take advantage of rising columns of air called thermals, so that they can ride these often in a swirling pattern, and they can ride these columns of air without expending a lot of energy. And when they when they're swirling around in these these thermals, it's it's called a kettle of hawks because it's almost like a boiling kettle. And you can see tens of thousands of them sometimes in a single day. A lot of times it just looks like a speck, a bunch of specks in the air, but that's what they are. You know, the the one thing that I, I also wanted to ask you about was this scream or this call. You know, I think a lot of us, Stephen Colbert used it to open up his <laughs> late night show. And, you know, we it's it's a very distinctive call. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why that is. And, um, you know, it just seems like the kind of thing where if you're a bird of prey, having this distinctive call would be problematic because your prey can use it as a signal that you're around and go hide or even other birds could mimic it and therefore, you know, scare oh, and, they do. Know, just, and they do. Right. So, so tell me a little bit about the call. Well, they don't say it when they're chasing prey. Now, Often on TV, they, they play the call and then you see the bird of prey attacking, but they don't <laughs> right. do that. They, they often are using it to talk to other birds or in some cases to you to say, get the heck away from my nest. Uh-huh. I see. So if you hear it, you know that their bellies are full or they're not interested in... in well, they're not hunting. They're, they're not, not hunting. hunting. Although, you know, I think the reason that people believe that they utter this cry before they chase prey is because often, you know, if, if you're near a nest and they don't want you near their nest, they don't know what you're doing there. Right. They'll utter this cry and they'll swoop. And so I think some people thought like, well, he uttered the cry, he swooped, but that's what he must do when he's hunting, but it's not. Got it. I see. Well, that's that's... Good information to know that uh, if you do hear that cry, it's probably you. <laughs> right, right. Not the prey. And, and just back off from back off from the nest because I mean, none of us want to disturb somebody when they're nesting. 
So you describe a couple of um, uh, birds that you became friendly with, I guess that's that would be the word, or that got to know. I wonder now in your life, do you have a, a hawk that you visit regularly? Is there still one that you're building a relationship with? Yeah, there's a hawk up the street. Our, our friend Henry Walters, who's a poet and a linguist and a parent and all kinds of other wonderful things, he is a master falconer. He used to live in Dublin, New Hampshire, and he now lives up the street. Huh. And I knew his previous hawk, a big red tail named Mary, who he captured as a youngster, fed and um, trained up and kept healthy over the, the winter and then let, let her go. Um, 80% of young uh, hawks die in their first year. So the falconer who captures a wild one, feeds it up, trains it up, and lets it go is actually giving it a head start. And that's what Henry did. Well, Mary, um, he let her go a few years ago. But since then, he adopted or bought a Harris hawk from a breeder named Mahood. And he lets me fly Mahood with him. And when he and his fiance go away, I get to take care of Mahood. Where does Mahood live like when he's not flying? <laughs> Is it a cage? Oh, he, live, he lives in like an aviary that's called a muse. Okay. So it's, it's a big aviary and um, he's perfectly fine to, to wait in that aviary. Birds of prey don't want to be constantly on the hunt. I mean, that's what they really enjoy. But just like we're happy to be sleeping when we're tired. We're happy to be resting in a chair. You know, it's it's not like miserable that they're not hunting 100% of the time. And and when their bellies are full, they won't hunt because they don't want to expend that energy because, you know, their their point is to stay alive. But they do love to hunt when they are hungry. And um, it's, it's thrilling to see Mahood get to slip on game. And it's been wonderful to see this young hawk grow in confidence and skill and it's been wonderful for me to see Henry's relationship with his hawk. And when I say his hawk, he doesn't own the hawk any more than he owns his fiance or you own your children. But I talked to him about the relationship you feel with the hawk who is in your care. And he said, you know, it's a, it's a funny kind of love because it's love, but it's mixed up with violence, the violence of the hunt. And it's human love trying to apprehend superhuman things. In that way, I see it as a kind of love that opens up our hearts in a new way. It's the kind of love that doesn't demand anything in return. And when you think of all the other loves of our lives, our, our love of our pets and our friends and our parents and our lovers, in all of these, we expect something in return. You know, you, you expect your friend to, when you have them over for dinner, you expect that they'll ask you out to a movie. You know, you, you tell them your troubles, you expect them to tell you their troubles. You expect your, your lover to love you. You expect your parents to care for you, and you expect your children to respect and, and care for you. But a hawk? You can't expect anything from a hawk, but you love them anyway. So how does that compare to your relationship with the octopus? Oh, this is so interesting. 
I think my relationship to the the octopuses who I've known has been more like my relationships with other mammals than it has been my relationship with hawks. And it's interesting because octopuses, as you know, have beaks like birds do. Mm-hmm. And while birds are more distantly related to us than mammals because they are dinosaurs, octopuses are even more distantly related to us. They are you know, we we shared a common ancestor half a billion years ago when everybody was just a tube. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't think that, you know, I I could have an easy friendship with an octopus in which we loved touching each other, which is so different from the relationship you have with a hawk who you really, they don't like, they don't like being touched at all. And being touched is something that we crave so much. And we love so much in our other, the other animals that are in our lives. I just met a wonderful banana slug yesterday (laughs) um, whose name is Duke and uses the pronouns they, them, because Duke is a hermaphrodite. And Duke came out of his terrarium and he instantly is, and you know, his antennae, they're, they're called tentacles, they're eye stalks. The eye stalks popped up, the lower tentacles popped down. His skirt went into action and he started cruising along my my skin. And in that way, I had this like lovely tactile relationship with a banana slug that you can't have with with a hawk, a vertebrate, so like ourselves in other ways. And it's too bad because its chest looks so puffy and soft. <laughs> I know, I know. And other birds do like you to, yeah. to, to groom them. But... A hawk generally does not want you to touch it. Cy Montgomery, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. And for our listeners, The Hawk's Way is now available at booksellers everywhere. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Pleasure was mine. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Royhalla, Michael Galgul, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Master, and Charles Weil. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.